Hello friends, Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025, and the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Erie Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12 through 15, 2025. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your life. Sometimes we can feel like God isn't doing anything significant in our life, or worse, like He's forgotten you. Well, the heartache of feeling like God's abandoned you can be overwhelming. If life has ever crumbled around you, no matter how hard you prayed, you know the feeling I'm talking about. It's a mix of hurt and sadness and, honestly, despair. Well, God is the one we're supposed to turn to with our disappointments. But what do you do when God is the one who's disappointing? In this episode, we're turning to the book of Ruth for the answer, and it is a good one. So I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. I thought we'd take a few weeks and look at the book of Ruth. So we're sort of in between what might be longer series. We just finished that 66, you know, thing that took like three years to do or whatever it was, thanks to COVID. Uh, but Ruth is a great book. And I think we, I know we did a, a, a one message on it in our 66, 66 series. But we're going to take a little deeper dive into this wonderful book and, uh, and this wonderful woman of, of God in the Old Testament. So turn to the book of Ruth, and as you're making your way there, I think I've shared with you before my uh, old pickup truck that I used to have that was a work truck, and it was one of the trucks that you don't mind using for work. A lot of times when you buy a pickup truck, especially these days, you know, the thing costs as much as a small house. Have you ever, like, priced new pickup trucks these days? Good grief. You might as well live in that thing. And uh, they're big enough now where you can with the extended cabs and all that. Anyway, I, uh, I digress. But this was definitely not a nice new truck. This was an old, I think it was still like in the early 80s, even late 70s, Chevy pickup. I mean, it, it looked like it had been abused. So you didn't mind using it. And it worked great ex except for the gas gauge. The gas gauge in this pickup truck uh, always showed almost empty. I mean, there's empty, and you know how the little thing, it was just like right above empty, so it's, you know, it's almost empty. You can have a full tank. I just fill it up, and it's almost empty. You know, I, I'm, I drive for hours, it's almost empty. The only time it was accurate is when it was almost empty, and then you had to really make a beeline to the filling station because then it was accurate, and it, went, boop, it just went right over to empty, and then you knew you were done. Uh, many times I would skate into the gas station on a wing and a prayer, just hoping that it would make it all the way in. But I've, I've always remembered that truck, not just because of the, of the oddball gas gauge, but the oddball gas gauge is a great illustration sometimes of our unusual thinking in life. Sometimes situations in life can cut the short on the gauge of our fullness, and we can be riding along with a full tank, and we will judge that our life is almost empty. We can be blessed to the gills, but with a perspective that doesn't focus on the Lord, we see our life is empty. No matter how much gas is in the tank, we always see our life as almost empty. Life gives us raw deals sometimes, and... No matter, uh, regardless of all the blessings that are in our lives, we can have a skewed perspective. Yesterday at um, my family reunion sort of uh, annual get-together prior to Thanksgiving, we had Thanksgiving a little early, 
And it's just so interesting to hear people talk. You know, you're, you're, you're like catching up. And with COVID, you're catching up for two years. And you're just sort of catching up with people and their perspectives and how they talk about their life. And the perspective that we bring to the table, often with total strangers, can be, uh, can be a little jaded. Well, you know, how you doing? Well, you know, it's tough. <laughs> well, of course it's tough. That's how life is rigged. But we don't have to view life empty all the time. The book of Ruth, in our English Bible, Ruth comes right after Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. Hebrew Bible has got the same content as our Old Testament, but it's arranged a little differently. They had, I guess, a different purpose in mind when they arranged theirs, but it's all the same content. It's just, the, you know, the, the books are arranged a little differently. But it still makes sense that the book of Ruth comes after the book of Proverbs. In Ruth, we will see her referred to as a woman of nobility or a woman of worth. The Hebrew phrase is called an eshet hayil, and it's, it's a person of, of honor. In fact, Boaz is also called this, we'll see in the book. But that phrase, that exact Hebrew phrase, is actually used in the book of Proverbs, the very last chapter of Proverbs, with the great Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of great worth. You have described in Proverbs 31, and then in the Hebrew Bible, turn the page, you have the book of Ruth, you have Ruth, who is an example of a Proverbs 31 woman. So, uh, if you're in Ruth, by now I hope you are, turn back one page, or look back one page, to the last verse of the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges is the time when the book of Ruth occurred, and the very last verse of the book of Judges gives us the context uh, Judges 21:25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then you turn the page, and now you get to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, and in our minds we need to think when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife, and his two sons. In a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, this man of Bethlehem left Israel and went to sojourn in Moab with his family, with his wife and with his two sons. So what was right in their eyes at this time of famine was to leave the promised land and to go live in a foreign land because it was a time of famine. Why was there famine in this time? In the Old Testament, God had set up a system with Israel and said, look, when you go into the land, here's how it's going to work. It's really simple. The land that you're going into doesn't have an abundance of water like, the, like Egypt had the Nile or like Mesopotamia had the Tigris and Euphrates. And so you didn't have to pray for water. You just go to the Nile or go to the Tigris and Euphrates. But in Israel, there's not a lot of water. You got the Sea of Galilee, you got the Jordan River, but unless you're like camped all along the side of these things, there's not a lot of natural water. Water in Israel comes from the sky. It comes from rain. And here's this here's the setup, God said. If you obey me, if you obey the law, it's going to rain. No problem. But if you don't obey me, it's not going to rain and there's going to be famine. And, and the purpose is to get you to obey, to get back in fellowship with me, says the Lord, and it'll rain. So simple system. Let's just obey, and it'll rain. It's sort of like what our parents you know, taught us when we were growing up. They, they would say, you know, this can, this can work really well. Just do what I say, and it's going to be a blessing. But if you don't do what I say, it's going to be a curse. And the goal is to get you to come back. Well, in a time of famine, what does this tell us that it's not telling us? That Israel was in a time of rebellion. And we know from the book of Judges, the context, that Israel was in a time of rebellion. And a little later on in the book of Ruth, we have a section of genealogy that lets us sort of know about when Ruth happened. Ruth probably happened around the time of Samson. And if you know anything about Samson, you know, this is not a judge that was like leading Israel into great uh, morality and spiritual life. Even the judge of Israel at this time 
was a sad, sad person. So we have a context here where there's not a lot of people doing godly things. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and this family sees it as wise to leave the land. There was a Jewish scholar named Judah Slotki, and he quotes the rabbis who said this, quote, It is not permitted to emigrate from the land of Israel, even to escape the pangs of famine, because he who does not dwell in the land of Israel is as if he worships idols. Now, this is the rabbi's perspective, at least, on the Old Testament law. And I think it fits because in Deuteronomy, in the, the blessing of Deuteronomy 28, if we return to Deuteronomy 28, we would see the blessing that God promises is 23 times referred to as, quote, in the land. The blessing is in the land, in the land, in the land. For God's people to leave the land, it's like, how is it going to get any better if you leave the land that God has promised to you? But everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and in this family's eyes, they decided to leave. Well, look at verse 2. Now we're told a little bit more about them. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, they'd entered the land of Moab and remained there. Interesting. In first verse, they were just planned to sojourn. That's sort of a temporary stay. Verse 2, we're told they remained there. And the names are ironic. In verse 1, we didn't mention, but there was a time of famine in the land, and a family that lived in Bethlehem decided to leave. You know what Bethlehem means? Bethlehem means house of bread, house of food, and yet they leave. And again, the names here are ironic. Uh, Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. And Naomi's name means pleasant. And honestly, we're not sure what Machlon and Kilion mean. Some say it means sick or failing. It's really kind of conjecture, kind of guesswork. But we know what Elimelech's name means. In fact, Matthew Henry says that he sees this name is a bit of a rebuke. I mean, if God is king, why leave Israel? It's almost a paradox. And yet again, the context is everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. So they leave in order to live, and yet look what happens. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. That's a pretty long sojourn. You know, when I go to sojourn at my relative's house, you know, maybe three days. After that, it's definitely time to leave. Two days is even preferable, especially if they're at my house. (laughs) But we aren't told anything but that he died. We aren't told how he died, anything. It's just, the story just tells us they left in order to live, but Elimelech died. And she's left with her two sons. And then you can almost see panic sort of start to set in. Because for the family line to be carried on, I mean, you've got, the parents, and now you've got the sons. Okay, we got the line. But what, now when it's just the sons, there's this sense of panic, and they marry Moabite women, which was, again, against the law, against the law of God. You weren't to marry a foreigner. And it wasn't that God was against mixed marriages. He was against the gods that came along with that mixed marriage. This was Solomon's undoing. Remember, Solomon married a bunch of foreign women that brought foreign gods, and that was Solomon's undoing. And we're told here that they left the land, but it didn't fix their problem. And the word here is, uh, the word that's used here is really the word bereft. It's sort of an an odd word. Uh, In verse 5, it says that she was bereft of her two children. Machlon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So now the husband dies, and they scramble and marry Moabite women, the sons. And then the sons die, and so the woman is bereft. She is left of her husband and her two sons. So they left in order to live, and now their whole family line is like done because 
They don't have children yet. These daughters don't have children for whatever reason. After 10 years, they don't have children. So this is almost, you can see, God's hand on this for these young women to, uh, to not be able to conceive after 10 years. Well, apparently, there's good news. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So now it, she's heard that the famine's over in Israel, which means there's some kind of national repentance. Somehow the, the nation has turned to the Lord uh, for a brief period, and God has caused rain, which brings food. And notice it says that she heard that, God, uh, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Well, she was one of his people. She didn't have food. She wasn't in the land. So what did she do? Decided to go back to the land. Implication where she never should have left. And so she heads back to the house of bread. She heads back to Bethlehem. Well, look at verse 7. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi tells them to go back to the house of their mother. Interesting. It's not that they didn't have fathers, but the implication is that it was the mother that gave advice on marriage, which we'll see later on in the book as well. It was the mother, typically, who gave advice on marriage, and when she says that you may find rest in the house of a husband. In other words, go back to your customs. Go back to Moab. So they're like on the road. They're walking back to Bethlehem, and Naomi stops them, like she's been thinking, look, this, there's no future for you in, in Bethlehem where we're going in Israel. You've got to marry within the family. And in fact, she tells them this uh, very clearly. Verse 10, they said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have, have yet I sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if even I should have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So her meaning is plain enough. If you come back to Israel, we've got to follow Israel's rules. Israel's rules are you've got to marry in the family. And uh, there's nobody to marry. And even if I was to get married and have a son, you're going to wait till they grow up? She says, just, just go back to Moab. There's no future for you. There is no future for you where I'm going. Well, that was enough for one of them. They make their decision. Verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. You can just see these poor ladies just crying and hugging each other. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So one of them is named Oprah. I'm sorry, Orpah. (laughs) And she decides that she's going to go along with the culture. She's going to go her own way. She decides when the real situation is shown, the real Orpah was shown. She took Naomi's advice. She kissed Naomi goodbye and headed back, which means that if she had married these Hebrew into this Hebrew family and had made some kind of a profession of faith toward the Hebrew God, it was just words. She returned. That if it's a matter of looking at a future as a, as a desolate widow for the rest of my life, a struggle in a foreign land that I don't know anybody, everyone's going to look at me funny, why in the world would I choose that? So instead, she decides, you know what? You're right. Bye. And kisses them goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. And the Hebrew is very emphatic here. Ruth clung to her. In fact, the, uh, the word here for clung is literally cleft 
to her, cleaves to her. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis where it talks about a husband and wife cleaving, or a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's the same idea, or it's the same word. In fact, that's probably why these verses that we'll read here uh, coming up in the book of Ruth are often read at weddings, because it's that same idea of leaving the family of origin for a new family that you're never going to depart. Naomi tells them to return, 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 and they initially say, we'll return with your people. Notice, your people. And then uh, Orpah decides to go back to her people and her gods. But Ruth was different. Think about Ruth for a second. Up to this point, what was true of Orpah was also true of Ruth. Both were Moabites, both professed, to worship Yahweh, both married Hebrew men, both lost their husbands, both said they returned to Naomi, with, to Bethlehem, both were told by Naomi what lay ahead, and um, of course Orpah left for greener pastures, but Ruth clung to her. She is standing there, imagine this, the road behind her is to Moab, the road ahead of her is to Israel. Her childhood, her parents, her friends, her culture, her language, her gods, everything she had ever known was behind her. Before her was the land of Israel. She'd heard about it. Of course she'd heard about it. But it was an unknown place. It was unknown faces, an unknown situation, an unknown future. And described by Naomi, it sounded pretty terrible. There's no future for you. What would you choose? If this was you standing there in the road and your sister-in-law had just left and you're standing there facing a future that you know is going to be hard, what would you choose? You know, it's real easy to admire Ruth until you put yourself in her sandals and then you realize this woman had a, had a major decision to make. The author of the book makes a stark contrast between them. Ruth clung to her. Look at the words that Ruth said in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Our day is filled with shallow commitments, as we heard earlier today. It's easy to have beliefs, not so much to have convictions. With everything from fair-weather friends to fair-weather family and a fair-weather faith, if our commitment is only as strong as our circumstances, then our commitment is going to change because circumstances constantly change. Well, there's several principles from this text that we can glean, quite a few we could glean, but I've selected three, and here's the first one. Refuse to let circumstances determine your commitments. Refuse to let circumstances determine your commitments. Notice the contrast between verse 15 and 16. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, her gods. But Ruth says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So now there's a contrast between Ruth and Orpah that's even greater Orpah chose to live life for herself rather than for the Lord. And that principle, again, refuse to let circumstances determine your commitments. That's exactly what Orpah did. She did what Israel did during that time and did what was right in her eyes. What was right in Orpah's eyes was to look out for Orpah. I'm going to go back and I'm going to do what makes sense to me. And if that's what determines our convictions, then we will always be changing them because circumstances always change. If we allow circumstances to determine our commitments, then our commitments are constantly going to be changing. 
which, uh, which of these two young ladies would you like to spend time with? The one who decided, decides what's best for her is going to be her priority? Or Ruth that decides that she's going to go with the Lord and with, um, with the Hebrew people? Notice what she says in verse 17. We tend to camp on your people should be my people, your God, my God. But look at verse 17. She says, where you die, I will die. Notice she didn't say when you die, I will die, like, you know, we plan to die at the same time, where you die, meaning she's not just going back for Naomi. Because when Naomi dies, Ruth's going to stay, and she's going to die there. Ruth's going back for, for something more than Naomi. And she says, there I will be buried. And then she says, thus may the Lord do to me. Usually, it's the phrase, this, uh, this curse, as it's sort of usually said, is may God do to me and worse if I ever do such and so. But she uses the Lord's name. She actually says Yahweh. May Yahweh do to me if anything but death parts you and me. She has taken his personal name. He is indeed her God. Ruth's, in effect, saying, I'm not just coming because of you. I'm coming because I've made a commitment to Yahweh. Yahweh is my God. And she breaks all ties with the past, with the, the Moabite God, and she follows the God of Israel and the Lord. So, verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? You hear this a lot, don't you, when it's been years since you've seen other women or other people. It's not just true of women. But uh, we change. You notice that? You looked at one of your old photographs lately? We change. In fact, yesterday at the family reunion, I was just sort of marveling what two years can do to people. (laughs) Of course, we haven't changed at all, but I mean everybody else. What's left of Naomi staggers back into Bethlehem, and the ladies say, is this Naomi? In fact, does anybody have the New International Version? Does it it say, can this be Naomi? It's almost like, you got to be kidding me. This is Naomi. She came back in, and she was different. She was beaten down. She was obviously changed physically by appearance, but she was also changed in her heart. Verse 19, Uh, is this Naomi? Verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Ah, small towns. (laughs) Anybody from a small town? You know exactly what I'm about to say then, don't you? In a small town, everybody knows everybody's business. And as soon as something new happens, boy, that's news. I mean, that's, that's like the most exciting thing. Naomi is back. Naomi is different. They all come up to Naomi, and, sh- and, they, and she says, don't call me Naomi. Remember what Naomi's name means? We looked at it in the first few verses. It means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. There ain't nothing pleasant about my current situation. She said, call me Mara. Remember in the Old Testament when they came to the bitter waters and, uh, and the, they named the place Mara? She says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Hey, everyone. Wayne here. There's nothing that's going to make you fall in love with the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, like traveling to the places where they occurred. Well, you can. Registration is open and it's well underway for my upcoming tour and cruise to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the great Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. Going to these Bible lands will change the way you read the New Testament. I'm certain of that. Just see the video and the complete itinerary at waynestyles.com tours. And now, back to the podcast. 
They named the place Mara. She says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. You see, Naomi saw that God's hand was involved. She recognized God's hand was involved, but she interpreted that her tank was empty. She came back, she says, I went out full. I went out with a full tank. But I've driven the pickup back into Bethlehem, and my gauge shows empty. How do you think Ruth felt standing there? (laughs) Empty. But here I am. I came back empty. There had been a change, and she is clearly disappointed in God. We saw it in verse 13 already, where it says, The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. But now she says it four more times. She says in these verses we just read, verse 20 and 21, look at them again. Don't call me empty, uh, call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. It's God's fault that this happened. Or or fault, if you want to, maybe that's a little harsh in, in criticism, but she sees God's hand as the reason that this has happened. The Almighty has afflicted me. Maybe she feels that it's because of what they did in leaving. We don't know. It'd be total conjecture. But it isn't conjecture that she sees God's hand as the reason. And she says, I'm bitter. My life is bitter. I don't know that um, she's necessarily bitter in the sense that she is you know, bitter or angry at God, but rather she sees her life that way. My life is bitter. My life is hard. And, and this is God's doing. There's been a change in her heart. The Journal of Psychosomatic Research says this. There was research that was done to determine how people rated various life changes according to how difficult it is to adjust to them. So how difficult are these to adjust to in life? And they were asked to rate these events from 1 to 100 to indicate how hard they were. In other words, you know, number 1 is the hardest, number 100 is the least difficult. And... Uh, And I'll read just a few of these. Number one, the most difficult, was the death of a spouse. Number five is the death of a close family member. Number 13 is sexual struggles like infertility or whatever. 16 is a change in financial state. 28 is a change in living conditions. 31 in work conditions. 32 in residence. 35 in religious activities. So in the top 35 of the most difficult things, Naomi had experienced all of these, but not just Naomi, so did Ruth. Both of these ladies had dealt with very difficult changes in their lives. Naomi's statement is that the Almighty had made her life very bitter and had brought this misfortune on her. It showed an honest disappointment with God. Sometimes I think we give God a lot of credit for the empty in our lives, but not a lot of credit for the full. And we get very myopic or very focused on self. Notice she refers to herself in these verses eight times. Look in verse 20. Do not call me, Naomi, call me, Mar, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly against me. I went out full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me, Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. Me, 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 me. And we get that way. This is not so much a criticism as it is an observation. When we are struggling under the sovereign hand of God in our lives, we can get incredibly focused on self. And and we don't want to hear about other people's pain. This is one of the most uh, telling statements in the life of Joseph. Joseph in Genesis, remember when he's in prison? Joseph is in prison unjustly, and these two guys with him there have dreams, and then they're all sad the next morning. And Joseph says, why are you sad today? Why in the world would you ask that unless you truly cared? If Joseph was sad as well, why would he ask? Because they they might answer, and then you'd feel worse. But Joseph 
obviously had a joy that went beyond his circumstances to where he could reach out to someone else and actually ask them, why are, you, why are your faces sad? Why shouldn't we be sad? We're in prison. Joseph was able to rise above it, but Naomi was not yet to that point. It's really easy when life gets difficult to say God is the one who's really at fault here. After all, God could change it. He could change it like that, but he doesn't. We'll pray, we'll pray, we'll ask, but nothing changes. Listen for a second to what King David wrote in Psalm 13. Just listen. First verse. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is the mighty King David writing this, or at least the young King David. Not exactly sure when he wrote it. But listen to that. How long, Lord, will you forget me? Forever? Is God ever going to forget David? No. So theologically, that's terrible. But emotionally, it is accurate. The Psalms are great. One of the best parts about the Psalms in the Bible is that they show us how people of great faith express their emotions to God. Here's another Psalm. This one's great. Psalm 137, verse 8. Listen to this. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little children against the rock. That's in the Bible. You're not going to see that on a plaque at a Christian bookstore, though. How blessed is the one who smashes your children against the rocks. Who would pray this? This this is one of the many imprecatory psalms where you're, you're praying down curses on your enemy. Whatever happened to loving your enemy? You know, praying for them. Well, that's got its place too. But what the imprecatory psalms are doing, what David did in Psalm 13, and what I believe Naomi is doing here, and what we need to do as well, is this, this second principle. Be honest with God about your feelings. You know, prayer is really the only safe place to talk. And it's really safe. God can hear it. He can hear it all. He hears the imprecatory, heard the imprecatory psalms. He hears our imprecatory psalms. He hears us complaining against our sorry lot in life and blaming him for it. God, why don't you do this? Or to quote David, how long, God, are you going to leave me in this situation? Forever? It feels like forever. Why don't you do something? And we rail against God's goodness. And in some sense, we fall for the temptation that Satan gave Eve. If God was really good, your situation wouldn't be the way it is now. He's holding back on you. You need to do what's right in your own eyes. You need to head back to the many Moabs I can offer you. Now, be honest with God about your feelings. He can handle it. He can handle it. And I love that Naomi does that. She doesn't pretend to be something something she's not. She doesn't walk in as Miss Spiritual. She walks in and says, you know what? I'm really struggling with this. So much so, it really helped me if you quit calling me pleasant. (laughs) There's no healing in pretense. Now, the Proverbs also tell us that a man of many friends comes to ruin, meaning you don't wear your heart on your sleeve. There are those that stick closer than a brother. There's God, you be honest with them, with him. There are those that are safe, you be honest with them. So there's that as well. You've got to balance, balance it all. But she says in verse 20, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's an honest disappointment with God. And the narrator, thankfully, doesn't pass judgment on her here, probably because he knows the end of the story, that Naomi's perspective is going to change. But could we also create another little principle here as a sidebar that we need to be gracious with other people when they are like Naomi is? You know, when other people are struggling with a bitter life and they express it to us or we hear them express it, we need to give them a break. It's a clue for us to pray for them, not to judge them. They're in process. Think about the times in your life where you've struggled against the goodness of God. 
And God has used that struggle to deepen your faith. He didn't grind his heel in you and say, why don't you have more faith? I'm so disappointed in you. It's that very struggle that God's going to use in Naomi's life to deepen her faith and to draw her closer to him when God shows himself to be God. We need to have that same grace in the life of other people. And in some sense, we need to give ourselves that same grace because we have been wrong about our feelings, haven't we? Absolutely. And other people need that same margin of mercy. Oh, Here's another thing to think about. When you get angry with God, like Naomi seems that she was at least frustrated with the Lord here, ask yourself, what am I so afraid of? When you get angry with God, answer the question, what am I so afraid of? I remember one time there was a very difficult time in my family that I was flat out mad at God. And uh, I let him know just what I thought about the way he was running the universe. And then I got to thinking, what is it I'm so afraid of? And I, got, I was frustrated because I, I was afraid of the pain that God's sovereignty was going to allow in my life. Not my family's life, my life. And how I was going to have to deal with it. I was afraid of the fact that I wasn't in control of my life, that I actually had to submit to a God that might want to do it differently than me. So when you are angry with God... Ask yourself, what am I so afraid of? Because it may be that very thing that God is going to teach you, whatever it is you're afraid of in that moment. Okay, that's too deep. Let's let's, uh, back off a little. I saw a cartoon, uh, an old Marvin cartoon. I don't know if you've ever seen Marvin, the little baby. Old cartoon, but I love it. He's sitting in his crib, and Marvin says to himself, I'm hungry. Should I wake my mom up to feed me or wait until she gets up on her own? Next frame. Last Sunday, the minister said patience was a virtue. And so he just sits there and sits there and sits there. And then the the second to last frame shows him screaming, (laughs) Then the last frame is a sleepy mom holding out a bottle. And Marvin takes the bottle and above Marvin's head, he says, I don't believe in mixing food and theology. (laughs) We struggle with that too, don't we? Mixing food and theology, or anything we perceive we need with theology. God says this, amen, that's great. But when what God says bumps up against the fact that I'm hungry, all of a sudden, theology, forget that. What's it going to take to get what I want? And we'll head to Moab, or we'll do whatever it seems right in our own eyes. Well, the final principle we're going to see in the verses we'll read after the fact, but let me give you the principle first. The third principle is this. Look for the blessings hiding in plain sight. If you feel like your life is empty, like Naomi thought, Look for the blessings hiding in plain sight. She says in verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's so easy in the midst of our disappointment with God to overlook what's right there. Ruth was right there. And it's a bit of a spoiler, I I know, unless you've read the book of Ruth before this morning. But after the good news happens in the last chapter, The ladies right here, the very ladies who says, is this Naomi, are going to say that Ruth is better to you than ten sons. So you went out empty, yes. Or you you went out full, you think you came back empty. No, you actually came back with something better than what you left with. You left with two sons, you came back with Ruth, who's better to you than ten. This is the sovereign hand of God. But we're in the thick of it, we don't see it. It's so difficult to see it. It's helpful to have friends around us that can help us to give us that insight. But sometimes we just need to do this simple principle, look for the blessings hiding in plain sight. As we give thanks this week, what if we look beyond the obvious and began to look and began to give thanks for for God's grace in our lives on those things we're struggling with? Because those are the things God's going to teach us through. God so seldom teaches us through the blessings that we recognize. He teaches us through the blessings that we don't recognize, 
through the hardships that turn into blessings. Well, a ray of hope, the very last verse of chapter 1. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Interesting. The verse starts with a famine. Uh, the, the chapter starts with a famine. The chapter ends with barley harvest, the beginning of barley harvest. You can almost see in the authors, in the flow of the authors, like a gleam of hope. There's hope to Naomi's bitter situation. Barley harvest was April. And the way this is written in Hebrew almost has the anticipation of, well, what do you know? They arrived just in time for barley harvest. It, it has that kind of a sense. It has that kind of a sense with it. And notice it says not only Naomi returned, but it says Ruth returned. How could Ruth return? She's never been to Bethlehem, but that's the word. She returned. The implication is she's coming home. She's coming home to a place that she's never been before. Things are not as gloomy as Naomi believes. Like Elimelech, like Orpah, like Ruth, we have crossroads that we are coming to. We may be standing at crossroads right now. That is, you've got an opportunity to test your commitment. Which way are you going to walk? It's, uh, it's just a metaphor, but it's an interesting thing to think about. For when you think of Ruth, every step she took toward Israel was a step away from Moab. And for Orpah, every step she took toward Moab was a step away from Israel. Think about that in our lives. So rare that we get the privilege of standing still and deciding, like Ruth did that day on the road. A lot of times we decide as we're walking, don't we? Every step we make, we take away from the Lord is a step toward the world. Or as James says, friendship with the world, we become an enemy of God. But the same is true uh, in the opposite. Every step we take toward the Lord is a step away from the world. You're very familiar with Romans 8.28, but how many of us are familiar with Romans 8.29? Let me read both to you. Just listen. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. A couple of very important observations about this verse. We're familiar with 828. God causes all things worth Great, something good is going to come from this. How do we define good? We often define good as in life circumstances, don't we? Somehow God's going to make my life better because of this garbage I'm going through. We interpret it that way. But that's not what the verse says. The verses say that the good is that we might be conformed to the image of his son. The good of God causing all things to work together for the good is that we might become more like Jesus that God uses all the struggles in our lives, that we might become more like his son. Now, good may come. We've seen that happen. But that's not what Romans 8, 28 and 29 is teaching, that God's great sovereignty is to work all things into our, to our lives, that we might grow to be more like Jesus Christ. God was doing that in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life. And as we watch their story unfold in the next few weeks to come, we will uh, also... Uh, hopefully, by God's grace, rise with them in our walk with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how easy it is to look at our gas gauge and become so fixated on what looks to be an empty tank. You've given us trials, just as you promised you would, struggles, Sometimes they are difficult struggles, things that we don't even see how we can make it through, things that cause us to pray emotionally like King David did. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? This is how we feel. It may not be what we believe, but it is what we feel. We feel at times that you have abandoned us, 
and like Naomi wandering back into Bethlehem just to get bread. Her spiritual life, she perceives that you've been bitter with her. Well, we know how the story is going to unfold, and by your grace, how you're going to show her that her perspective was focusing on all the negatives and not trusting your sovereign hand. Father, as we deal with whatever it is we're struggling with right now, whether it's a simple struggle or whether it is something that is threatening our emotions and that is causing us to deeply struggle, even in our walk with you, thank you for your love and your patience for us, with us. Thank you for loving us enough to allow us to pray ungodly things to you, to allow us to pray theology that we don't even believe, but it's how we feel. Thank you for loving us enough to bring people into our lives that love us, that show us the truth, that model for us a life of faith, that you might, as we read in Romans 8, 28 and 29, develop us to be more into the image of your wonderful son, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would um, just continue to strengthen us each day as we trust you. And then would you use us in the lives of others to strengthen them as they struggle, to challenge them to not give up, but to keep walking, to keep waiting, to keep praying, because the barley harvest is coming the time where you will show yourself to be the good God whom you truly are. Father, we love you. We look forward to our time in this wonderful book. And until then, we just rededicate our trust to you, even when we don't see a reason to do it. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. My friend, God has not forgotten you. His children and their growth are always on his mind. Romans 8.28 promises that he is working all things together for our good, and our good is becoming like Christ. That process may sometimes bring with it heartache and disappointment. And if you're there right now, let the story of Ruth and Naomi spur you on. Refuse to let your circumstances determine your commitments. Be honest with God about your feelings. And look for those blessings that are hiding in plain sight. (laughs) Your barley harvest is coming. Well, next week, we're digging a little deeper into the book of Ruth for insight on how God is guiding our lives. And aren't you glad that he's the navigator and not us? That's coming next. Until then, live the Bible. Live the Bible.